0: Sometimes you get lucky, and your game is an instant hit without investing in growth. For everyone else, there's IronSource. IronSource is a game tech company which builds technologies that helps you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super-efficient way. So, whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, Iron Source is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor Fund are giant fans of Iron Source because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So, we suggest that you head on to ironsource.com, that's ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks,
1: folks. Most mobile advertisers are increasingly aware of the dangers of app install fraud. In fact, global financial exposure to app install fraud in the first half of 2020 was 1.6 billion. And even though the mobile ad industry has grown exponentially to defend itself properly against ad fraud, the potential amount of damage is still extremely high and fraudsters will always want a piece of that pie. Now, Fraud methods are constantly evolving and adapting to solutions in the market. Still, staying protected and applying sophisticated anti-fraud solutions are very much a necessity for all marketers. As you all know, our good partner, AppSlyer, offers super robust fraud protection, making sure you're not paying for that bogus traffic. AppSlyer is also perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile, a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive that marketing success. And listen, it's not only us that Here deconstructor of fun raving about AppSlyer. Playrix, Tencent, Playtika, Square Enix, Huge Games, all of these companies and many more are using AppsFlyer to boost their business. So go to appsflyer.com and get yourself attribution and fraud protection you can trust.
0: Hello everyone, welcome to Twig 96, August 17th, Monday morning. Today we'll be covering three articles first. Next gen gaming state of the industry from the Unreal Engine blog site. Second opinion the Apple Epic Battle has four possible outcomes and Epic can't lose. And finally, Wildlife Scores Vulcan led 120 million Series B financing to propel mobile game platform from Crunch Today we have myself, Joe Kmeric Crest, Adam Telfer, and we also have with us again Kenny Lou. What's up, guys? Hey, hey hey what's up so what's going on any any new updates from you guys
2: uh we finally got out of town we went up to uh i don't know, Gurnville or Healdsburg. Hillsburg, right it was freaking 110 degrees up there dude. it was ridiculous right before school starts next week yeah it was good to get out see the countryside is the heat wave in san francisco too Oh, yeah, it's brutal, dude. It's freaking brutal. And the thing is, the the reason it actually was good for us is because there's actually AC in these places, right? In San Francisco, no one has AC, so you just fry, you know? So, like, there's no escape, right? Um, And so, anyway, it's misery. Actually, this basement where I am in, um, it's actually the coolest part of the house, and it stays cool, so. So, so,
0: no interesting updates uh, on our side. Let's talk talk about the weather.
2: Yeah,
3: that's for you,
0: (laughs) So update. So I've got I've got a few updates starting with the first update, which is the Embracer Group announced a number of acquisitions, eight in fact, including 4A Games, creators of the Metro series, and a bunch more. Probably the most notable of the other seven is DECA. CEO Ken Go of DECA for Twig listeners, you may remember, came on a podcast with us in the past. And it was reported that 4A was acquired for 36 million. Update number
2: two. PC wait, 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 wait! Hold on, man, dude, you're all business, dude. Just like chill out, dude. Anyway, Ken Go is a good is a good friend of the podcast, and he worked with me at uh, Kabam. Man, congratulations, dude. The guy got paid. You know, he worked his ass off in, in in an Asian guy in Germany, dude. That can't be easy, dude. You know what I'm saying? So good, good job, Ken.
0: Okay, update number two. PC Games is reporting that EA shareholders reject paying EA executives a bunch more money. In fact, 74% said no. In the latest money grab, where high-level execs try to take credit for shit that has absolutely nothing to do with their skills as as executives, EA shareholders were finally able to say no to some of these exorbitant pay packages. Note that it's going to ultimately be up to the board to decide, however, whether these pay packages actually go through or not, the article notes that an SEC filing from June indicates that two execs in particular were exceptionally exorbitant, although many other execs also got big bump recommendations. So first, CFO Blake Jorgensen's total proposed pay for the 2020 fiscal year, including salary, stock awards, and other forms of compensation is $19.5 million, up from $9.4 million last year. While CTO Kenneth Moss is set to receive fourteen point three million in total compensation, up from seven million the year before, CEO Andrew Wilson has less of an of an increase from eighteen point three million to twenty one point four million, but still a lot for a guy who still hasn't figured out mobile. Joe the-
2: Joe jo- jo, jo, yeah. is this you writing or is this someone else's no, this opinion? This- you're <laughs> just you're a big haterator, dude. Just all right. <laughs> moving on. I, I, I'll get to. I might have some comments later. All right. Well. Anyway, this is going to upset you even more. you got to get off your high horse for a moment, but okay, moving on. Go, go, go. All
0: right, so not to get too political, (laughs) but I'm going to get a little political here. (laughs) The sad fact is that most executives actually don't deserve their compensation, in my opinion. If you look at the S&P 500 since 2009, these companies bought back $7 trillion of stock through excessive leverage that basically constituted $0.90 of every dollar of profit. And then, when these highly leveraged companies get in trouble, the government and the U.S. taxpayer has to bail them out again. I don't want to get too political, but in my opinion, this excessive greed is creating an unstable societal framework that will soon not be sustainable. Oh, for Christ's sake! Shift. Shift. Here we are. Whoa,
2: whoa, whoa! This has nothing to do with video game companies, though. They're not levered at all. Like they have no leverage.
0: I mean, I guess. Well, it's but my point being that. What have these execs done? Okay, we're in the midst of a massive coronavirus boom, and these guys are trying to enrich themselves
2: for doing what? What? What did they do to improve their company? Do you, do you know what their job is? What? What is Andrew Wilson's and 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 Blake Jorgensen's job? Like, what is their fundamental job purpose well, it's in different
0: life? From a CFO, from a CEO, but from the perspective of the CEO, it's basically to lead the strategy, make sure the no. High, right. No.
2: No. It is to increase shareholder value, period, end of sentence. That is the system in which we live, right? And they have done that. The stock is trading at an all-time high right now, right? Shareholder value has increased, and they should be rewarded for that. Now, does it have anything to do with them? No. Andrew Wilson is a moron, right? He can't figure out mobile to save his life, but that's irrelevant. <laughs> the fact of the matter is he. they inherited this amazing company and with amazing content and amazing strategy from Frank and 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 and, and John And they've executed against this flawlessly. And Jorgensen is the boss, dude. This guy cut costs dramatically over the organization. And you might say, well, that's not really nice, you know, nice thing to do, like cutting people and firing all the marketing people or whatever. But the reality is they've done their fucking job, right? They've increased shareholder value and should be compensated for it. And these guys have no life, you know? Like we're doing this jobs are not easy, man. It's a pain in the
0: ass. That's that's where we would differ because I think that, executives should be paid for adding alpha, for adding value to their companies, right? Like, so basically if you did something and by accident, your company gets a windfall, you're gonna fuck your employees and just take all the- How all, are they gonna,
2: how are they fucked their employees? Their employees are getting wealthy. They just their have a layoff. No, their employees are getting wealthy too, right? Everyone, Everyone's winning right now that works at EA, right? Maybe they have um, layoffs, they have restructures, et cetera. No, but I'm, I'm not the only one. So CTW
0: Investment Group, this is according to them. They're stating, quote, EA went too far in terms of executive pay, piling on exorbitant equity awards while paying multi-million dollar bonuses following worker layoffs. So anyway, for me, this is too much. So EA is the only video game stock I own. After this podcast, I'm out.
2: You're out of your goddamn mind.
0: All right, right, moving on. Update number three. Tencent recently reported one of its fastest growing quarters in years in terms of both profits and revenue. They saw as many other companies have, a large surge in mobile gaming. Some highlights from their earnings release. First, uh, operating profit in the second quarter increased 38% to 5.32 billion compared with 26% year-over-year growth the year earlier. Revenue increased 29% to 16.23 billion. Online game revenue increased 40%, largely driven by my favorite game, Honor of Kings and Peacekeeper Elite, both domestically and internationally. Social networking revenue increased 29% with a large contribution from Huya, a game streaming platform Tencent owns a controlling stake in. Media advertising revenue actually fell 25% year year over year. Finally, Tencent said they do not expect Trump's executive order banning WeChat transactions to material away on their future growth. Quote, the U.S. represents less than 2% of our global revenue. Within that, advertising in the U.S. should be less than 1% of our total advertising revenue. James Mitchell, 10 cents chief strategy officer, said during the earnings call.
2: Wait, is, is, is 2% of their global revenue just for, for for WeChat or is it for including gaming? I, I think, think he's it's just right. talking about WeChat. That oh, seems really good. low. Yeah, it seems too low, but okay. All
0: right. So final update, uh, a lot of folks in the gaming industry seem to be unaware of this, so please do pay attention. On August 5th, I can already tell everyone. Joseph,
2: you got to get a full-time job, dude. You're spending way too much time on this political crap, dude, geopolitical issues. <laughs> it's your okay. nuts.
0: August 5th, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo proposed what's being called the Clean Network Program. Now, there's a lot to this initiative, but amongst other things, it proposes five different lines of effort. Clean carrier, clean store, clean cloud, clean cable, and finally, what's relevant for us in the mobile gaming space, clean apps. Now, I'm sure you're already aware of the current news around TikTok, but what you probably didn't know is that TikTok actually doesn't operate in China. There's a similar but distinct service for China called Yin. So Tencent has already contemplated this scenario. Based on that, you, you can see they've expected it. But guys, I kind of spoke about this in a previous podcast, but just to play this through, just think about it. Today, Facebook, Google, Twitter, YouTube, Netflix, and Wikipedia, amongst many other U.S.-based services, literally do not operate in China. U.S. companies cannot just launch mobile apps in China without a license and without a Chinese partner. So... My point here would be that do you really think clean apps and blocking Chinese-based games in the U.S. is unthinkable? So just think it through. If China-controlled apps can no longer operate in the West, what would that potentially mean for your business? So today, both U.S. and India are starting to take dramatic actions against China. So... You could imagine a company aligned against a US or India focused narrative in a strategically important game category controlled by Chinese based companies like, I don't know, Shooter or MOBA would potentially be a good bet on the future. If only there was a company like that that existed. Anyway, if you want more
3: (laughs) self serving, self serving,
0: (laughs) (laughs) just do a search on quote, split the internet, and I'll link some pointers to relevant docs in the show notes below.
2: All right. So let me get this straight. Your whole business model is predicated on a global geopolitical tensions leading to the split of the internet in half, isolating Chinese apps in China and the rest of the apps in the rest of the world. I got it. Got it. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. That's that's gravy, Eric. That's gravy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Moving on. Adam.
3: Uh, Yeah. So Um, I'm just going to do some quick updates in terms of HD launches as well as some mobile trackers. Um, So on the Twitch side, um, news this week, Shroud is back on Twitch. So after that movement to Mixer, um, currently playing Valorant, maybe a little bit of Modern Warfare. Uh, Fall Guys, the game that we talked about last week, is still at number two on Twitch, which is surprising. It's actually on top of League of Legends, on top of Fortnite, on top of uh, Call of Duty, um, as well as Valorant. Um, I don't expect this to sustain, but it's a really, really fun game um, and it's it's uh, definitely capturing a lot of the market, pretty surprising results. Um, Valorant is stuck at top seven um, and actually Superdata reported recently very, very strong revenue. So it looks pretty promising that Riot has been able to build a sustaining shooter that can carve a solid audience away from CSGO. Um, it's actually higher than CSGO in terms of viewership currently. And when we just look at the CCU on Steam, it has dropped from about 1.2 in May, 1.2 million in May to about 875k today, that's CSGO. So it looks like it actually has been able to carve a pretty solid slice there. So I think huge kudos to that team, especially to Paul uh, for a lot of hard work put into that game. Uh, Very impressive results. Uh, hyperscape on the other side is Ubisoft's Battle Royale shooter that they attempted. Um, it's pretty focused on, say, like fast movement around this map. It's pretty much fallen off. The peak of interest, you know, spiked during their beta. But despite launching, like doing a big global launch now, just has not seen the same success that Valorant had. Um, so, yeah, that's Hyperscape. Eric?
2: You think Valorant can hold here? I mean, my birdies told me that basically the super, super data number was probably pretty close um, and it's pretty strong started around 50 million for the first month and that's before a lot of the crazy cosmetics got in in uh july right so you think they continue this level or does it move down over time or what, what do you think here
3: when i look at the angle of the like just just the, the viewership right like they've been able to do some pretty amazing things with Valorant. so um i, I think they're probably going to be stuck within the top 15.
0: have you guys played some of these other games like i played hyperscape over the weekend i, I didn't like it and I know I hate it on Rogue Company because I just couldn't get it to run on my Xbox, but and I hear it is super buggy, but a lot of people are really saying good things about Rogue Company. I don't know if you guys have played that yet.
2: I haven't seen that one. I've
3: not yet you know, saying good things about road company. I haven't okay. seen the 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 positive sentiment around Rogue company. Okay. I'm this kind of spiked exactly. a bit on Twitch, but yeah. Uh, okay. because like there's there is Hyperscape, there is Rogue Company, and then there's also something called Rocket Arena, which EA released yeah. recently yeah, yeah. which was like a complete flop so you kind of have like three shooters all trying to do the same thing that valorant did with their own kind of segments of the market um and absolutely nothing so i think this really points to um some pretty strong strategy around riot in terms of taking over a space and having a very very clear strategy um and i think yeah the- i mean
2: yeah carving out their niche and just pulling from an existing audience as opposed to Try to exactly
3: define a new one and go yeah. super hyper differentiated. Like, just
2: it just seems like we're like, what's the right word? We're just splitting an atom here, you know. It's like how <laughs> many splits of the market can you have before like it falls apart? But the, yeah. but I mean, Valorant's doing a lot better than I expected, right? And
4: well, and, yeah, I think one of the things about Riot that um, I think our listeners have to understand is that they um, after they launch a game, they're fully committed to investing. In the long term like you know at least several years to basically get that game off the ground so uh and this is true for all r d titles uh no matter how potentially promising or unpromising they may seem you know at launch or soon after launch uh, when they come out so um you know for legends of runeterra for valorant for all kind of r d games you can if, if riot's releasing it you can bet your bottom dollar that they're not going to like sunset it or cancel it, you know, in a short time after. So I think one of the things that's really the biggest superpower of Riot is how to manage a live service game well and to cater towards an audience and cater to their needs and respond to feedback in a timely manner, constantly update, constantly balanced. Um, That's something that uh was always Riot's strength with league of legends and i think they can carry that forward to to a game that already sees success at launch um now the the only the big question mark with riot was always like you know when are they going to actually release their second or third or uh, or at next game and so they've already kind of uh gone over that hurdle but it'll be interesting to see how how much exactly um they'll be able to pull off from the other pull out from the other audiences and the other games yeah
3: uh, but I think just in general, like product strategy, when you're trying to look into the HD space, right? Um, Valorant has proven that you can. The best strategy is almost like a, a, you know, a proven product manager focus, which is you you interview the high level players from this game, and you find you have a very deep understanding of what those players want, and you deliver on that, and you deliver on the details. Yeah, and you, you you ignore a lot of the the like trying to go for some crazy differentiation to make your game look and feel different, right? It's like really just nailing the fundamentals of what your players really want.
4: Yeah, that's exactly, that's definitely true. so a lot of the key early people who were involved in the Valorant team, they were um, very uh, competitive, hyper competitive, hyper hyper skilled uh, Counter-Strike GO players or CS players. And so um, that was definitely done purposefully.
3: Yeah, and then now in terms of their monetization, right? Like they're only leaning into Weapon skins, maybe in the future they start thinking about other things in terms of selling character skins or, or these types of things. It's right now at least they've got the basics in terms of retention um, and and being able to grow through streamers. So promising in terms of the mobile side, um, just to move forward. Some notable soft launches. Um, these ones are all in tech soft launch, so not nothing metrics wise we can take from this. But Ludi is launched. Wonderful Worlds, which is a Disney theme park-themed gardenscapes, Um, seems to have some gotcha elements in terms of collection of characters. NetEase has Techsoft launched their Lord of the Rings Rise to War 4X game, Um, the Ring's movie IP. Um, Fallout Shelter Online um, is Bethesda's sequel to the original, Um, so hopefully they can actually fix that core economy there and actually scale it better. Uh, Puzzle Breakers, which is Playrix's um, Empires and Puzzles style game, I'm still in tech soft launch and train riders, which is a little bit weird train riders is by Cybo, which is one half of the subway surfers uh, team. Um, They actually look, it looks like it's pretty much a clone of subway surfers, which just got like 3 billion downloads, but it it seems like one half of the subway surfers squad is now trying to launch a clone and try to do better than the original. So I don't really understand what's going on there. Um, RPI tracker for a few games. So Haiti pop, Um, which we've been um, tracking as well has now reached about two and a half dollars in Australia after about five months. Comparing it to most match threes on the market, you look at like Lily's garden and homescapes, they are more than double that. Um, So I think uh, Hey Dave's pop is struggling right now in soft launch. Battle Legion um, is now about $2.2 after about seven weeks Uh, which is better than Rush Wars did, which I think is the comp that people are pointing to. But I think when you look at the overall strategy segment, it's just not really scaling all that well. So uh, we'll continue to track that. Farmville 3, um, which I I think, uh, Joe, you did that video on about almost a year ago, right? Yeah. Has flattened out at about $2 RPI in Australia and New Zealand, uh, which is a lot weaker than Farmville 2, um, which was about $6 at this point. Um, so I'm not really sure what's happening with Farmville 3.
2: Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't either. It seems like it's on uh, coast mode or something. Like they're not really doing much. But... Yeah,
3: yeah. Because um, I know there is a lot of promise there. Yeah. I guess next push is going to come from there. But it doesn't. I, make- I remember it was
0: really well executed. I hopefully, hopefully these guys, come on guys, pick it up.
2: <laughs> Dude, they haven't released a game. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's unbelievable, right? So I, I, I think. Um, Harry Potter is the first the game that's coming out the next. I think some probably in September or something. But um, but they said that they're going to get all their games out by the end of the year. The three games that are in beta, which includes Farmville, um, Puzzle Combat, and uh, and Farm and uh, sorry, and Harry Potter. So mm. we'll see. Okay,
0: okay, people, we're going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsor, Beta Hat, and then we will be right back. So stay tuned.
2: I want to talk about consumer insights. Honestly, I've always had issue with consumer insights. I questioned the value and felt that CI was always somewhat disconnected from the real world. The big issue with CI firms is they don't hire people that know anything about video games and therefore don't have a fundamental understanding of what matters in this business. That's why I like Beta Hat. Beta Hat knows the business of video games and understands how to connect consumer insights to the real world. And Beta Hat helps you understand your customers, understand not only what they do, but why. They specialize in customer segmentations, brand tracking, messaging and positioning, pricing and skew planning, and play testing through qualitative and quantitative research. There are about 10 people in this industry that I rely upon to understand trends. And one of them is Stan Kwan, the CEO of BetaHat. Hat Hat is the best CI team in the industry. Go to betahatmr.com for more information. That's betahatmr.com.
0: Welcome back from the commercial break and let's start the news. So rolling into the news, the first article we're going to start with is next gen gaming state of the industry. And again, this was from the Unreal Engine uh, website, but Brian Crescente, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, who founded the video gaming site Kotaku and also co-founded Polygon, interviewed a number of folks in the gaming industry and published this blog post discussing the current state and potential future of the gaming industry, and primarily from the perspective actually of technology. So I'll link in show notes, but I think this is an interesting piece to read to think a bit more deeply on some of the bigger trends that may impact us in the near term future. So I encourage you all to give it a read, but I summarized for me, what were the four key takeaways that I took away. And the first is really around engines and reusable content. A little bit obvious, but the article quotes Yuri Ratkovic, an engine and graphics programmer at 2x2 Games, who states, 'Uh, nowadays, indie teams that build smaller games don't need to have a very high level of technical expertise. That was historically a prerequisite for game development. This has certainly enabled more people to get into the industry. And a number of the other developers weighed in on how technical expertise is a barrier to making games have dropped significant with Unreal and Unity, but not only the tools, but actually learning. So because of YouTube, online programs, all this is making game development easier than any other time in history. And so rolling this back to this debate about whether games today, you require bigger budgets or lesser budgets to be successful, I, I think this is an interesting data point against that theme. Uh, The second takeaway is um, what I'm calling this theme around immersion versus compulsion. So, Fergus Burkhart, the CEO of Obsidian, talked about how technology today is also enabling a new level of immersion and the ability for players to, quote, touch the world in games. And so, Beyond that, a lot of talk on things like advances and lighting and tools to enable this. But for me, the interesting part of this was the focus of, and this post was largely the HD developer audience, but you know, having such a big focus on immersion. So this is in stark contrast to the focus of my world, the world of mobile and free-to-play, where the focus is on compulsion rather than immersion. So I thought that was just an interesting theme that I'd love to discuss deeper about in the future, but basically this notion of HD versus mobile and free to play, that focus, right? Immersion versus compulsion design. The third takeaway for me was around challenges and technical limitations. And the major challenges discussed were around a few things. One, the sheer amount of data needed. For example, Assassin's Creed Odyssey required using the entire Blu-ray disc. Second, the need to handcraft worlds versus procedural generation, limiting, adding on new worlds and content, because a lot of this stuff does have to be handcrafted. Third, lack of standardization, for example, cross-platform rendering. And fourth, how many games need to recreate the same things over and over, whether it's rocks, in-game features like inventory systems, et cetera, but I believe at Riot, in the article, they noted that they called this a rock problem, but just a sheer sure amount of recreation on every game that's currently necessary that actually shouldn't be necessary. And finally, the, there was this discussion around the future for games and this discussion revolved largely around the emergence of AI and machine learning. And the applications discussed were around synthesizing data, taking on a lot of tedious animation work, such as creating filler animations also tackling things like game balancing, exploit detection, game testing, and lifelike NPCs or bots. But from the people interviewed, it seems like, at least on this HD side, these guys are apparently looking at AI and and machine learning for a lot of the future. Guys, any thoughts?
3: Yeah, I felt like it was a good article, but I'm not really sure there's a lot of eye-opening information here. A lot of this that you just talked about has been kind of said for decades. And I think this article is written pretty hopeful for the future of what's happening. Um, like engines are definitely opening up the funnel to new developers and things are a lot more reusable and I think AI and machine learning have reduced the burden for things like QA. Um, but the reality is that while some things are getting cheaper and easier, the overall development of current gen games is going up. Right, The actual cost to develop is definitely going up. The amount of people involved in games is only going up. So. Um, the only counterexamples to this trend, I'd say, is some very smart developers working within AAA, um, like Remedy uh, with Control and Obsidian with Outer Worlds.
4: AAA, um, I, I like you call those studios AAA. Yeah,
3: triple I, right? Like it was, what was it, Senuous Sacrifice also talked about Triple I,
4: yeah. right?
3: like where they can actually get some pretty decent unit numbers and revenue from these games, um, but they really manage scope well. Right? to do a proper AAA experience. They keep it to like a linear 10 to 20 hour game. They really reduce the scope and keep it focused. Like to be honest, like the whole talk about Assassin's Creed, it doesn't need that big of a world, right? But the the, the fear is especially internally at, at Ubisoft I'm assuming is that you know every world has to keep getting bigger in order for them to sell more units. They need to be able to say on the box that this is the biggest world ever. It becomes almost like a Grand Theft Auto problem of, of doing itself so, instead of just like, refining the game down to a scope that actually makes sense. Um, and I think there's a lot of features and a lot of mechanics and a lot of content in games that just aren't really all that valuable to a majority of players. Um, so I think his first points here are pretty pertinent for indie games. There's a lot more diversity in the indie scene because of the emergence of Engines. And I think that's actually really, really good. Um, and I think it will continue with things like Core uh, by Manticore, Roblox, Steam modding tools and build blocks. Like All, all of these very um, um, simple and easy to use engines really can bring a lot more people into game development and bring a lot more creativity. Um, so, And I think also the industry consolidating around Unity and Real is actually very healthy. It's nice walking into a studio knowing that there's no proprietary engine That because uh, it is just insane at this point. Um, but while this is all pretty cheery and hopeful, the reality is that dev costs for overall AAA has going been going quickly upwards, not down. And I think like AI and machine learning have risen automated testing, but it's really not solved it. There is thousands of man hours required to test an HD game before going out. And yeah, key issue is content. So while I think there could be you know, some mid-tier developer successes here, like we're talking about Outer Worlds and like Goose Game in this article, but there's there's not a lot of success at this tier, right? The vast majority of titles in this triple I budget category are are still struggling.
2: Uh, Eric, yeah, I, I I'm with you. That 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 final statement is kind of where I've always been with this: is that uh, indie and triple I, which is interesting. Uh, just they're just. You have to compartmentalize the industry to some degree, right? The AAAs are just taking taking all the market away from everybody else. Like, there's just no, it doesn't seem like there's much market left for anybody else, you know, and the top titles that you look at US and Europe are all bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more expensive. Um, and then now, you know, with these subscription models where you can get like 100 plus games for $15 a month, including triple A games like, gears of war, halo, fable, forza except like it's going to be hard to compete for time and and money when when they're offering such a compelling product for, you know, next to nothing or close to nothing. So, I think indies have a tough time and I think probably the future of indies is something like Col- Manticore or Roblox or something like that where you have a system set up that with easy development tools and then a big audience, like that could be the potential where where things go for Indies, but otherwise, the way this market is evolving in terms of its concentration on pretty core audience, I think it's harder and harder to compete um, for the time and attention of these players, you know, but that's a long conversation. We could probably have a whole podcast on that, so but uh, I look at the data all the time, and the data does not suggest that there's this new area for Indies to. <laughs> to succeed and, and fl- uh, blossom and flourish. You know, it's kind of yeah, That's not what
0: the article was about, by the way. No? I, know, I know, but it <laughs> does point
2: to this idea that there's
3: like a economical mid-tier, right? That you can actually build um, some of these experiences um, because of what the engines have produced. And I just don't think that's the case.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. All right, my article. Opinion, the Apple Epic battle has four possible outcomes, and Epic can't lose. Well, I hope, as everyone should know, at this point, Epic threw down the gauntlet against Apple last week, and just to recap, Sweeney has out been out there been expressing his displeasure with the 30 percent fee on the app stores for the past six months, if not longer. Uh, so in to fight that, he offered <laughs> an option of direct payment. In which you get 20% discounts on the currency. So basically circumventing the app stores. The apps, the action obviously was against Apple's and Google's term of service, and Apple removed it from the App Store almost immediately, and Google followed suit a little bit later. Now, what happened after that was Epic had a lawsuit ready to just to and filed it immediately against Apple and Google. And <laughs> in kind of a really interesting twist, the lawsuit Epic was not seeking any compensation, nor seeking treatment, favorable treatment for itself, but was asking as an adjunctive relief to allow fair competition for everybody, for all publishers in the app stores. And that wasn't all. Like a boss and a gangster, Epic (laughs) Epic created a parody of the iconic Apple's famous 1984 ad which was a huge slap in the face to Apple and a big fuck you to Apple, for sure, um, to use such an iconic thing and make them look like the bad guys. Um, And the article suggests basically that there's six possible outcomes. Apple backs down and cuts a deal with Epic. The battle adds enough pressure to Apple to reduce its commissions for everyone. Apple offers a settlement before or during the trial. Epic wins its lawsuit. Epic loses the lawsuit, but antitrust regulators are influenced by it, and nothing changes. So my take. Time for Mia culpa, right? Tim Sweeney is a boss, and I'm a moron for questioning him. And I apologize for anything I said bad about this guy. He obviously set this shit in motion months ago, um, first in his Dyson variance, then in interviews, and even our appearance on our stupid podcast. He was basically building up this big, big fuck you to Apple and Google, right? And what's crazy is I think he actually put this game back on Google just to put his plan into motion, right? That's what it seems like it happened, right? I don't know, but that could be. Um, And also the big thing here is Tim is putting his money where his mouth is, you know, and I applaud him for that. That's amazing. You know, he's basically the 21st century Robin Hood, um, using his power and influence to change the ecosystem for the better and for everybody, not just his own company. So you know, I'm not sure this article is right, though. It doesn't seem that Epic really has a way of winning here. Uh, I could be wrong. But, you know, the fact that they're not looking for a deal for themselves and the deal is trying to change the nature of the ecosystem, both for Google and Apple, that seems like a pretty a big, big, big move. Um, and I don't know if they have the legal case here either. But perhaps we can bring in David Hoppe and our legal analyst to uh, to analyze this. But I think what's likely is that nothing changes, and maybe some antitrust regulators are somewhat influenced by this. But meanwhile, Fortnite will likely not be able to be updated on the phones. Ultimately, likely won't be replayable, right? I don't know if that's for sure, but but I applaud what Tim is trying to do here, you know. And I hope people take notice, right? And and more scrutiny occurs on what you know these this Apple's anti-competitive behavior and business practices, you know, over the last decade that seem to get no attention at all. Um, but uh, again, good job, Mr. Sweeney. I apologize for anything that I said negative about you because you seem to <laughs> do exactly what I was hoping that you would do um, and really putting your money where your mouth is, so go.
0: Hey, real quick correction though, Eric, it's that Tim is actually not, you know, when you open with, he's against a 30% fee. This is a big mistake a lot of people in history are making. It's not about the fee. He wants competition. The end game here is for Epic to have its own score.
3: Well, or or anybody
2: to have their own store. Or yeah, anybody. Right, like wants- open platform. Right, right, right. Doors exactly. and payments. Exactly. Got you. Got you. Yes. Sorry, I I misspoke. But I I understand that's what he wants. I think the only probably thing he will get is them to potentially reduce the fee to a more reasonable nut level. I still don't believe that having multiple stores a hundred stores on the apps on, on the on the app store, it makes sense for the consumer. I don't think that's a very good thing for consumers.
0: But yeah, I think the other way to potentially think about this is from a game theory perspective and just to like if you were to map out the scenarios in terms of yes, they get their own store relative to they lose the lawsuit and they take a loss in terms of revenue. You gotta think that, that the overall, you know, the the NPV on that scenario is highly positive in my opinion
3: overall, I do have a lot of respect for Epic and Tim here, right? Like they're really doubling down on what they believe in. Um, And yeah, like open platforms, open payments. And I think most companies at this point would be sitting on their riches um, as we've seen, you know, uh, for the last decades, but I have to hand it to Tim, like he's used his position to make positive change that he actually believes in. Um, So just keep in mind a couple details here. Um, So you can still play Fortnite on both iOS and Android. So it's not like you can't at all, as long as you've had it installed before. So you can actually go into the app store, into your purchase list and re-download, even if you haven't before. Um, Also Epic will still support the last iOS and Android version up until the next season. So that's, they're saying about two weeks uh, where people can still be playing on iOS and Android. So we'll see what happens after that point. Um, and also like even with Android players, they'll be able to actually update through the Epic store, right? So really Android players will have no issue. iOS is where maybe after two weeks, there's gonna be some issues. And also um, funny enough, even in-app purchases still work on both iOS and Android, um, especially through the Epic payment system. So they can still make a lot of money during this time so it's not as if you know you look at app Annie or you look at sensor tower and they're making zero dollars it's not really the case because they actually put in that epic payment system and it still works in that update it's just that now they're they um people can't download that new game um so uh overall though i i think we need yeah we, we need hoppy back on here right like i I I don't know how long this is going to take to resolve what the outcome is likely going to be. Uh, Will Fortnite be able to stay off the store for this long, right? Like um, if it's going to take months or or a year for this to be settled, um, can Fortnite stay off iOS for that long? Um, And yeah, like I think the one weird thing from my perspective is still like the fact that apps like Netflix um, have a deal with Apple to avoid this fee, yet other developers can't, right? Like what is the special case here? And, I think Apple really needs to to dictate that. Um, So overall, I'm gonna be cheering for Epic, but I have to ask though, like what is actually fair for Apple to take, right? Like, especially as games move to free to play, Apple does deserve a cut of their platform's revenue, right? Um, And even when you start looking at say digital only platforms, so like Steam, who's not gonna make money on hardware, right? Like eventually they should earn something based on their platform. Right? So what is the right percentage and where do you take that cut? Right? Like Epic store says 12% of upfront sales and 12% of MTX revenue comes to them. Um, but games can use their own payment system within the Epic store. Right? So does that mean effectively that games on the Epic store that are free to play can actually give no cut to Epic at all. Right? And is that fair to Epic? And is that fair to any other platform? So I'm I'm just trying to get a sense of like what is actually fair here in terms. So Adam, of- there's there's
0: actually a pretty good podcast where Tim Sweeney actually answered that question. So he says seven to twelve percent.
2: Yeah, I think his 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 math made sense to me. But hmm. um, but what's interesting I, to your point about Netflix, I think Netflix um, and uh, Hulu and some others. I'm, tr- I'm blanking on the other ones, but. Uh, you know, have special deals, I guess, with Apple and Google. So I think if Epic did a deal for this for themselves, they probably could have gotten a side deal with Apple and Google. But given the fact that the complaint is looking for an injunction for everybody, right? So that all developers have that flexibility of, of, of payments outside of uh, Google and Apple. But I think maybe if we can get David on to walk through this and, you know, and possible scenarios, but the, the, (laughs) I just keep saying that the feedback I'm getting from a lot of different people is that they don't really have a case here. So it's going to be harder and harder for the proof because it's not really direct com- competition per se. Um, um, anyway, I, I don't know. So I think we should get David in here. Yeah. Speak. Well,
0: probably like, I think David's a corporate lawyer. So, I mean, not, we should probably bring him on, but what we really need is a fair trade and antitrust specialist, but we'll, we'll work on that.
2: Yeah. All right. Let's do it.
3: But even in the case here, right? Like with open payment platform, how do you actually foster competition on that platform, right? Like competition for that rate, that percentage. On something that like Apple, if they started opening up to open payments to anybody, how do you actually foster competition in that environment? I mean, you would... I mean, in China, you have multiple
0: app stores, right?
3: Right. Yeah.
0: It look something like that.
3: But I'm talking about the payment side. Less okay. so, like, the this, this shop side, I think I can... Uh, yeah, yeah, It'd I agree. probably
0: be ugly yeah. where individual developers like integrate a different option. And so, you know, it's whoever the the game developer, that studio, whatever options they have integrated. And then the, the options they integrate will be based upon competition.
4: And they could also partner with like publishers who actually take care of payments and stuff like Garena for Southeast Asia.
3: Hmm. So then yeah, they start yeah. opening up things like uh, phone payments or other sources of payments and Exactly. Of- I mean, exactly. Yeah. This is this is
4: where
2: I I think it all falls off the rails, dude. If if you start opening it up to that kind of stuff, like you 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 have no control and no protection, no you know no security, right? It it's makes better.
0: It, it's better at the at the app store level rather than like different providers. I I agree with you guys on that.
2: Yeah, but but uh, yeah, and then in Epic's case, Riley, their their store is probably you know, as secure as Apple even. So, I mean, I, that's not a concern. It's just more opening it up to every single transaction system out there is pretty nutty, you know? us yeah. they're gonna take Bitcoin, you know, like from some, you know, company in the
4: Caymans, right? So I forget that. Is that
3: the end game of Tim Sweeney? That Fortnite goes on the blockchain? yeah
4: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> i think the metaverse has to be supported by the blockchain eventually you know so it's a matter of just get out of this homes. podcast kenny don't yeah even, stop sure, it come kenny. on there with this all right <laughs> all right well <laughs> anyway my only uh, my only additions in terms of commentary to this uh news uh, from publicly available source of data you can kind of um estimate that about 10 percent of total revenue for fortnite comes from mobile platforms which you know if you were to say that uh you know Revenue is correlated with the type of hours and engagement that's spent on the platform. So 10% of total game hours is also spent in mobile, um, which means that console and PC are taking a lion's share of the rest of the engagement and revenue pie in the West and probably, probably console more than PC, to be honest. Uh, I don't want to suggest that Tim Sweeney does not have guts of steel because he for sure does. But I do think that the environmental conditions created a perfect storm to allow Epic to choose now to make its stance. So, number one, his enemies, Apple and Big Tech, are coming under fire from Congress for their supposedly antitrust practices. Uh, Number two, uh, for a prolonged period of time, for the next year perhaps, Epic will likely see much less contribution from both hours and revenue from mobile due to prolonged COVID quarantine. So at the end of the day, in my opinion, Tim Sweeney is still a businessman. And this is both a, sh- a shrewd altruistic as well as business decision. Dude, I love it. I love the cynicism. It's great.
0: Yeah, having oh, said that, uh, you know, Fortnite revenue is actually up and they're actually gaining share against PUBG and other other games. Yeah,
2: but but on mobile, it's it's mice nuts, dude. It is like
0: so 10%, 50%. Yeah, on a relative basis, sure. The one other thing I want to mention here is that there have been – folks in the press, I think the one other misunderstanding is that this notion that Tim Sweeney is like an altruist. He's like some kind of hippie guy who's like trying to do good in the world. And I actually think he's uh, like, to your point, Eric, he's a gangster, but in a, in a good way, right? He's like, he's hes a business person. He's just trying to introduce competition. And he wants to compete like like a madman you know, against those different categories of competition, but it's I don't think he's doing this in an altruistic sense, more in an ecosystem sense. He wants a healthy ecosystem.
4: Yeah, Tim Sweeney is not a businessman. He's a business man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, that was terrible. All right, moving on. All right, cool. So uh, I'll, uh, the next kind of news, high, high-level news article we're going to talk about today is the fact that Wildlife uh, scores $120 million in Series B financing. Um, so this this story is actually pretty interesting to me because I know a little bit of background anecdotally from uh, some of the people that that work there. So Wildlife is the first Brazilian gaming unicorn and the first Latin American gaming unicorn um, in, in, from the whole kind of uh, um, area below the United States. Um, story is really interesting, uh, which was told to me by a former writer and current wildlife employee. So it was started by, I think, a couple brothers from Brazil, and it was originally called TFG, but they rebranded to wildlife maybe about a year or two ago. Um, And in the beginning, when they were still TFG, they launched a bunch of games in the more casual side, like Sniper 3D, uh, some color painting games. Anyway, they basically launched a bunch of these titles and they got better with monetization and growth, a.k.a. the business side of games uh, through these launches. And um, that's when they decided to then invest very heavily in hiring AAA talent, especially on the art side from Riot and Blizzard. So there's a lot of uh, kind of ex-rioters that I know that... um, um, basically work for wildlife now. And some of this AAA talent moved to Sao Paulo to be closer to the rest of the team, but others chose to stay in Southern California and manage slash advise from afar. Um, so they basically pair up these senior experienced talent with, uh, uh, with a more junior kind of Brazilian talent. And it looks like this round of funding is meant to go deeper on that strategy, trying to attract uh, talented AAA game designers to their studio. Um, So I don't know why they weren't able to attract them before, but maybe this will help. Um, Interesting enough, their biggest hit, Zuba, which is a top-down mobile um, Battle Royale shooter meets MOBA with about um, 25 players, so it's more intimate. This game uh, was what kind of put um, wildlife on the map, um, and for the most part, it was shipped and finished without much help from the X-Ride and X-Blizzard folks. So for me, I think the exciting thing about this story is to understand how well this kind of um, unique strategy will pay off for future games. In a lot of ways, it's very similar spiritually to what Riot and Activision Blizzard and other such kind of Western teams are doing by partnering with Chinese mobile teams at Tencent and NetEase uh, for these co-development projects. But instead of co-development, it's in-house and the distributed teams are located in the same hemisphere, north and south. Um, in uh, in the Americas, so the uh, other interesting thing to note about their structure is that their game teams are very small. So, for example, the Zuba team is—I uh, think—it doesn't have more than twenty-five people in it. So, it uh, takes you know a lot of inspiration from Supercell. So, for a company with thousands of employees, though, the number of staff they have to support their game teams is quite large. Um, uh, I, 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 especially, I think on the on the business and growth and monetization side. So, one could say even say that it's bloated. But uh, the other thing is that wages for Brazilians are a lot lower than for Americans. And um, incidentally, this is actually also a supposedly controversial internal topic for the company that many Brazilian employees feel unhappy about. Was there any
3: data on Zuba? Because like, according to Sensor Tower, I'm, I'm not sure how much of a success it is.
4: Well, it was a it was definitely a, a more of a flash in a pan, not like a long term success. But at least it it definitely, I think, hit the uh, the top charts much more successfully than their previous games in the past.
0: Also, for Lat a lot of the you know the population doesn't have credit cards. A lot of a lot of the more successful games are ad based. I don't know if Zuba is ad based, but they do make a ton of money from ads. Uh,
2: yeah. I- I think, I don't know, the only correction I would give you, I think the Tennis Clash game was like kind of their first foray, right? Mm, I don't the, think so. Their first real success. You know, oh, like yeah. They, I they had some them.
3: pretty stable successes before, right? Like like Sniper 3D and a few, like that That was kind of their base. Oh, right, 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 I think right, Tennis Clash has just been their recent.
2: Actually, they're both released like, at the same time. That's really interesting. Into like hybrid casualty things, so Zuba and Tennis Clash, yeah.
4: Yeah, their their way to incubate R&D projects is really interesting. I think they host like a quarterly um, game jam for the whole kind of company where everybody kind of comes in and works and and does a uh, a week of work on whatever game they want to do and then from that they that's how some some uh, prototypes get developed.
2: What, what 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 was their valuation like 1.2 billion? Is that right? Or was it higher than that? I think it was 3, wasn't it? No.
4: You mean from this most recent round or yeah. from I yeah I thought it was a I thought it was 3. Oh, yeah, it's, 3. Points. So they they announced
3: one, 120 million round series B and post round valuation of 3 billion.
4: Oh, oh it my. was 1.3 in uh, December when oh, they okay, they okay that's their 60 million series A.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, I don't know. I I, I look at these a little bit differently I, what my my thinking is like, what is likely the outcome for this type of company, right? And they have some absolutely huge investors like Vulcan and Benchmark and Bessemer. Um, And Victor and Arthur are the two brothers, I guess. They're in their early thirties maybe in terms of who manage or run this company. Um, And it looks like they're going through some serious growing pains at the moment. I mean, the culture seems pretty broken, you know, the work-life balance, nepotism, only results oriented. I mean, the founders seem to be out of control. I just keep reading these things on Glassdoor and and, and other things. And uh, it just seems that <clears throat> they're having some challenging challenges growing. These organizations, which is actually very typical. This happens all the time, right? It happened through Kabam when I was there. And I thought Kevin managed it reasonably well. But still, it was a real challenge. But the same thing happened to things like companies like Social Point, which was also had young founders, Storm8, and particularly Kixai, who I think, he managed that thing into the ground more or less. Um, so it seems to me they need to find more experience and season management to kind of lead the company to the next level. Um, but at this kind of valuation, there's a lot of pressure for them to continue and to go. And it might be too much for the young founders here, but we'll see, I guess. So what, what are the likely outcomes here? I think they should if, if try to find operations in the U S right or Europe and you know, expand to the first world. And even something like a merger of equals or something like glue would really make sense, you know, get public and get scale. But those are really hard deals to do. But I think what they do need to do is have more operations in the West so that they can build up uh, more infrastructure and, and and management teams to actually help manage a company of this size and this complexity, right? And so what I think is likely to happen, given these investors, is they're going to package them up themselves up for a sale, uh, you know, given the valuation, that may be a challenge, right? Cause they're so large. Uh, but going public as a publicly tra- public company in Brazil seems also very risky. <laughs> and, uh, they're, they're kind of in the same boat as scopely. Like they're so big that, uh, it, it's, it's more of a challenge, uh, to get sold. Um, but the difference is I think they are probably likely far more profitable than scopely and they're at a lo- low cost locations and they also have fewer titles that drive the business, which is can be more risky, but it's also a lot more profitable, um, and that uh, could be much more valuable to acquire, like Zynga or Tencent or et cetera, right? But based on the Glassdoor comments, you know they may be managing themselves off to a cliff, and they don't. Uh, and I generally don't pay a lot of attention to Glassdoor, but it's almost universal within the last six months that there's a lot of changes that need to be done to. Fix the culture, and 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 if if the things don't change, it could be a big big challenge for them to continue to grow. But I will be interested to see where this company ends up. Um, my my bet is that they get bought out in the next twelve months. I think the VCs are likely looking for an exit, and the gaming market is so hot 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 right now that the multiples probably can't get much better. So that's kind of my guess. But uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll keep watching it. All right. Is that
0: it? Oh, hot off the press! Tencent takes minority stake in French casual games maker Voodoo. I just wait, uh, wait. What was that? So apparently, Tencent takes a minority stake in Voodoo. Really?
2: Yeah. That's interesting.
0: Someone just messaged me and told me to tell you. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: so there, there it is.
2: All right. All right. I'll have to look into that. I guess that's for next week.
0: Yep. All right, guys. I think that's it.
2: All right. Talk to you guys later.
0: Bye.